0: The following message is by Pastor Jason Polly. More information from Harmony Bible Church is available at Facebook.com backslash Harmony Bible Church. It's a great day to be in the house of the Lord to worship him this morning. Let us go before our Lord in prayer. Father God, thank you for today. Thank you for your grace. God, I pray that you'd be with us, that you would guide and direct us in your word that you would help us to see the things that we need to see, that you'd help us to live in light of them. God, I pray that you would knit our hearts together in love, that you'd just be with us uh, this next hour as we uh, spend this time together, and God, that you would encourage us. God, help us to be faithful to you. Help us to lift up the Gospel and to lift up your Son, Jesus. God, I pray for just the churches that are meeting up and down the coast and around the world this morning, that you'd be with them as well that they too would worship You in spirit and in truth. And I pray that their lives would be changed as well. God, that You would start a revival, that You would work mightily and miraculously in in and through this community, in and through this state, through this country. God, through this world, that You would begin drawing people to Yourself, that lives would be changed. And God, I pray and ask that that revival would begin here and now. Help us to live lives worthy of the calling we have received the high and upward call of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. For it's in His name we pray. Amen. So we've been working our way through the book of First Corinthians. And uh, we've been uh, working through Paul's reiteration of the Gospel again and again and again, kind of laying this foundation of the Gospel, and he's moved into some specific um, application or some specific issues that the church in Corinth was dealing with. And we, as we've worked into First Corinthians... We've had this issue of immorality being dealt with in chapter 5, and immorality being rebuked, uh, namely sexual immorality. So as we talk about immorality today, I want you to remember and understand that what we're talking about, and what Paul is writing to in the, in, uh, the church in Corinth, is sexual immorality. That it's immorality of such a kind that exists within the sexual realm. And he says, he says uh, that he needs to correct them in this way because they're not acting as believers. They're not living out their faith. And then last uh, week, we kind of dealt a little bit more with that as he talked about sexual immorality. And if you're in a position where you've been waiting for us to get through five and six so we can move on to something else, we're almost there, right? Next week, we deal a little bit more with the topic as we deal with marriage, but we're almost there. So for those of the teens in the room who are thinking, when is this going to be done? We're close. But with that in mind, that background of the Gospel, laying the foundation of the Gospel, let's look at 1 Corinthians 6, verses 12-20. through If you'll stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Paul says this, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food. But God will do away with both of them. Yet the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. Now God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through His power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be! Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says, the two shall become one flesh." But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Free, or flee, excuse me, immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body. But the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own, for you have been bought with a price? Therefore, glorify God in your body. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading, the hearing, and the applying of His Word. Amen. You may be seated. So this text not only has its fair share of interpretive difficulty, it's also rather graphic in dealing with the sin of sexual immorality. So while today's message may be less light and fluffy, so to speak, and more meaty and hard to swallow, it's one that very much needs to be considered today. In fact, even though this message was written some 2,000 years ago, it is very applicable to the 21st century church, and it's also applicable to the sex-crazed culture in which we live as I've mentioned many times before in this letter, Paul is clearly addressing some specific issues or some problems within the church in Corinth. And in today's text in particular, he seems to be responding to some, some common sayings or some common slogans that the Corinthians were using to justify their sin. So they had these sayings, these slogans that they were using. And these slogans, as we will see, were this. Number one, they were saying, all things are lawful for Me. The Corinthians were saying, all things are lawful for Me. And number two, they were saying, food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food, and God will do away with both of them. And then thirdly, they were saying, every sin that a man commits is outside the body. So they're saying, all things are lawful, food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food and God's going to do away with them. And they were saying, every sin that a man commits is a sin committed outside of the body. So let's jump into our text by looking at the first of these sayings as we see it in verse 12. It's there that we read, all things are lawful for me. Or as the NIV states it, everything is permissible for me. See, it seems that those within the church in Corinth, they've gotten comfortable with their sin. And as we mentioned last week, they began to shape their theology to fit their lifestyle. That instead, what the Scripture calls us to is to shape our lifestyle to fit our theology. That's why I pray week after week that we would be doers of the Word and not just hearers of the Word. For us to come here week after week to read the Word, to study the Word, and then go home and do nothing with the Word poses a problem. It also poses a problem when we say I'm going to do what I want to do and I'm going to shape this book. I'm going to twist and contort the words that are written in this book to fit my lifestyle. To do what I want to do. See, the Corinthian believers undoubtedly began to say, Christ died to set us free from the law. Which is true. right? But then they followed up with also saying, therefore, all things... Are lawful for me. Christ died to give me, for to, to provide for me forgiveness. Therefore, they might even take out of context: there's no condemnation. There's no condemnation in Christ. I am free. All things are lawful for me. Which is certainly not true in the sense that it is a license to sin. And yet, that's precisely what was happening in Corinth. Many within the church were using Christian freedom as an excuse to sin. And you see, the problem was not that they were proclaiming their freedom in Christ. The problem was that they were perverting the doctrine as a means to justify immorality. I was talking with Mark a couple of weeks ago. Mark Coons, and he mentioned this is one area he believes, and I think he's right. The church is really not much different than the world when it comes to sexual immorality that the church has just adopted the world's view of sex. We've just brought it into our walls. We've Christianized it. we maybe cleaned it up a little bit. But we have the exact same view as the world, by and large. Because we pervert our doctrine. We twist and contort our doctrine. We shape our doctrine to fit what we want. And instead... We need to shape our lifestyles to fit what the Scripture clearly teaches. See, both Jesus and Paul taught that true freedom came through Christ and Christ alone. Consider the words of Jesus in John 8, verses 31-36. through It says this, So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed in Him, If you continue in My word, then you are truly disciples of Mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. They answered Him, We are Abraham's descendants and have never been enslaved to anyone. Which, by the way, is quite interesting. For the Jews to say, we've never been enslaved. Okay. How is it that you say you will become free, they asked him. Jesus answered, truly, truly I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. So if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. Consider the words of Paul, Romans 6, verses 5-7. For if we have become united with Him in the likeness of His death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of His resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with Him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For the one who has died is freed from sin. And verse 14 of Romans 6, for sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. You've been free from your master, the master of sin. Or Romans 7, 6, but now we have been released. We have been set free from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the Spirit and not in oldness of the letter. Or Romans 8, 8 2, for the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. And one of my favorites of all time, Galatians 5.1, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. So knowing that freedom in Christ was a regular part of both Christ's teaching and Paul's teaching, because it was an an essential element of the gospel. They both taught it because they knew that it was an essential element of the gospel. Christ died to set you free from sin and death. And knowing that, there's no doubt that Paul taught this very doctrine while serving as a pastor to the church in Corinth. If you know, I've been here a year and a half, almost two years. There are some things that you have probably thought, he said that before, right? He he says that again and again and again. It's because I can't come up with new material. No, it's because there are some things that are near and dear to my heart. And what was near and dear to Paul's heart? The Gospel. The Gospel of freedom. Freedom from sin. That which Christ provided. You see, however, what was not taught in Corinth was this idea that being free in Christ could be used to justify sinful behavior. Which, by the way, is a very common practice today. The message that will be heard from far too many pulpits this morning and lived out in far too many homes this week will be, we're not under under law, but under grace. Therefore, it doesn't matter what you do or how you live despite what the Bible says. The Bible says it does matter. It does matter what you do. It does matter how you live. And the problem in Corinth was the same problem we have today. Namely, that many have twisted the Gospel message into declaring freedom to sin, when in fact, what Christ provides is freedom from sin. So the first point in our sermon outline is number one, freedom from sin. See, all those passages say you were a slave and now you've been set free. So don't become a slave again. Why would you subject yourself to becoming a slave to sin when you've been set free from it? Look at verse 12 again. Verse 12 of 1 Corinthians 6. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Paul responds to their slogan, all things are lawful. A misapplied version of his own teaching. And he does so by saying, not all things are profitable though, and I will not be mastered by anything. This is a good grid that we would do well to live in light of. We would do well to run everything through this grid. Is it profitable? Will it have mastery over me? See, the question we should be asking is not, can I get away with it? But is it profitable? Am I going to become enslaved by it? And often when the question gets asked, should I do such and such? What's really, that's what's being verbalized, but what's really being asked is, can I? I can't tell you the number of times. As a pastor, somebody's come to me and said, should I do such and such? And what they're really saying is, can I get away with this? how far can i push to the edge and still get away with it and i tell you sin is deceptive i see this in my own life I see this in my own life it's scary that sin is so deceptive that you think i can just get really really close and i'm going to be okay instead of asking can i get away with it we should be asking is this profitable Am I going to be enslaved by it? Can I have a glass of wine for dinner? Can I buy a new car? Can I go back for seconds during the fellowship luncheon? Right. Well, the answer is, well, you won't go to hell for it. Is that what you want for an answer? Well, you won't go to hell for it. But the question is, should you do it? Is it profitable? Is it, are you going to be enslaved by it? And those are questions that, depend, that vary differently based on the circumstances and the individual oftentimes. Should you buy a new car? I don't know. Is it profitable? Are you going to be using that car for, to build up your brothers and sisters in Christ? Are you going to be using it for ministry? Are you going to be using it for His glory? Are you going to become enslaved by it? Does it mean that you now have a payment that you need to make that you can't afford? You see, Paul's point was, I'm not going back there. I'm not going to let anything enslave me. I must examine. You must examine. Is it profitable? Is it going to bring me into a place of slavery? Not just, can I get away with it? So Paul continues in verse 13 with the second of the sayings that were being used to justify their immoral behavior. Apparently, the Corinthians we're saying, food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food. But, and just as a side note, um, the New American Standard says but, while the ESV and some other versions more accurately translate the Greek in this case and say and. So I think the, the Greek clearly says and. So what's being said is, food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food, and God will do away with both of them. So they're just saying, the Corinthians were saying, we have stomachs, And what are they for? We have food, and what is it for? In the end, our bodies are going to go into the ground. right? God's going to do away with those things. So in the meantime, we should feed the appetite of our stomach. In other words, if you can't draw the connection here, what they're saying is, just as eating and drinking were natural, physical functions of the body, so also was sex. They're saying... God gave us food for our stomachs. He gave our stomachs for food. He gave other parts of our body for pleasure. Just as you feed the appetite of your stomach, so you should also feed other appetites, is what they were saying. Hey, as I was working through this message, I remembered a news story I saw this week. News story is quite alarming. It's uh, based out of San Francisco. Um, but what's interesting, and we, we chuckle, right? What's interesting is this is kind of old news because Maine's already been through this. Uh, several years ago, almost a decade ago, Maine actually worked through this, this issue and came down to where San Francisco is just now getting around to being. So um, The article says this, or the news story says this, the San Francisco Unified School District made waves earlier this week for its decision to approve the distribution of condoms to middle schoolers. But San Francisco isn't alone. Oakland Unified School District adopted a similar policy in June of 2014. And then there's a quote. It says, there wasn't pushback, and it wasn't controversial, controversial at all when the policy was passed, because most parents want their kids to have the resources they need, said Mara Larson Fleming, Director of Health and Wellness for the Oakland School District. And she goes on to say that, uh, this article goes on to say about 8.5 of seventh graders within the school district are sexually active, and 5.4, 8.5% of seventh of, uh, graders are sexually active, and about 5.4% of middle schoolers are sexually active. But the thing I want to draw to your attention is this quote There wasn't pushback, and it wasn't controversial at all when the policy was passed. Because most parents want their kids to have the resources they need. They need? That this is a resource that is needed for middle school kids? You see, the problem is we live in a world that says it's a natural appetite. It's a natural bodily function. So feed your appetite. We've lost sight Of what it is. So in Corinth, much like today, they were saying, just as eating was a natural, physical function, so was sex. That it didn't have a spiritual dimension to it. That it was physical. Merely physical. If you get hungry, you eat. You have other appetites, you can and should feed those too, is what they were saying. And the problem was that such thinking was rooted in fallacy. So, Paul responds in verse 14 by saying, Yet the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. He says, The body isn't designed for that. It's not for immorality. It's not for doing as you please, as you suppose. Neither food, nor sex, nor anything else you do in the physical world is neutral. What's done in the physical realm does matter. It's not as though you have your spiritual life that you live out. And then you have these things over here, right? Then we go to church, we have our spiritual life. I, I pray, I read the Bible, I serve in the church, I preach a sermon. And then I have these things I do over here, right? I eat, I drink, sexual activity. And those are all purely physical with no, no spiritual significance whatsoever. It's not as though that is the case. Instead, Paul says the body is for the Lord and the Lord is for the body. His point is that our bodies are to be used to serve the Lord and not serve ourselves. A teaching we see reiterated just a few chapters ahead in 1 Corinthians 10.31 where he says whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, including sex, do everything for the glory of God. You see, we've been given these bodies and we're to use them to bring Him Glory. And you can remind me of that, by the way, after the service, uh, during the fellowship luncheon. right? If I'm hanging around the dessert table too long, say, we're given these bodies to bring Him glory. And you chuckle, but I'm serious. I need that reminder. We're given these bodies not to bring glory to ourselves, not to please ourselves, but to bring Him glory. So please, hold me accountable. So in verses 14 through 17, Paul gives two reasons why the Corinthians, and by extension us, why we should not engage in sexual immorality. Number one. Number one, he says, God has promised to physically redeem us. You shouldn't engage in sexual immorality because God has promised to physically redeem us. Paul proves to them that this dichotomy, this separation that they have of that which is physical and that which is spiritual is false. And he does so by pointing to the resurrection. He says, no, God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through His power. He says, God's going to raise you up physically. I think what he is, in essence, saying is, remember, God raised Jesus. And He's going to raise us up physically. So your argument that that which you do in your bodies doesn't matter... Because you say your body is just going to be done away with? That argument is foolish. God's not doing away with your body. He's redeeming your body. He's going to make it perfect. See, Jesus died to redeem us both spiritually and physically. And He's the author of all aspects of our lives. We can't separate the spiritual from the physical. God is the creator, sustainer, and redeemer of both. Number two, he says, We are members of Christ's body. He says, Not only has God promised to physically redeem us, but you shouldn't engage in sexual immorality. Number two, because we are members of Christ's body. He says, For the fourth time, actually, in this letter, Do you not know? Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says, the two shall become one flesh. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. You see, just as marriage is a picture of Christ's relationship to the church, right? we know that from Ephesians, marriage is a picture of Christ's relationship to the church, that oneness, that unitedness, that foreverness, that sacrifice that exist in that marriage. So also, sex within the bond of marriage is a picture of Christ's union with His believers. See, the point that Paul is driving home here is that as a believer, you are now in Christ. And Christ is in you. You're now part of His body. You're forever connected to Christ. Scripture says again and again, you are in Christ. And Christ is in you. You're forever connected. And that, folks, is what sex is meant to demonstrate. It's meant to demonstrate a one flesh relationship, a relationship that is forever connected, inseparable. That's why the Bible condemns sex outside of marriage, because it portrays something entirely untrue. It's like an unbeliever taking communion, it portrays a relationship that doesn't exist. You see, sex is an act of worship. Sex is an act of worship. And I realize this might be a new concept to some. And you know what? That is incredibly sad. Because most of us learned what we know about sex from childhood friends, right? Not from this book. Most of us did not learn about sex from this book, from godly parents who loved us, who taught us, who showed us this book, from Sunday school teachers, from pastors who showed us what this book had to say, but instead from our friends on the playground, and we carried it through into our adult lives. And then we continued to learn from the television set. I was thinking this week, this is not in the uh, script, so I I might get in trouble here. I was thinking this week, in Corinth, there's the Temple of Aphrodite, and the pagan goddess with temple prostitutes and the people would come and they would sleep with the temple prostitutes and i was thinking of the correlation between that and what we do with our television sets what we do with our computers we sit down at the idol of the television set and we make love with our eyes but make love right we have sex with our eyes with temple prostitutes as seen on the television set. As seen on the computer screen. It's really not that much different. Not much has changed. Come 2,000 years, and not much has changed at all. So sex is an act of worship. Just like taking communion is an act of worship that points to Christ's sacrifice for our sins, so also sex is an act of worship that points to our oneness with Christ. Just as communion paints a picture of what Christ did for us, so also does the marriage bed. Just as baptism is a play that acts out the dying to self and being raised to newness of life, so also husbands and wives, when they have sex, it's a play that portrays the forever connectedness we have in Christ. See, it's meant to be. It is meant to be no less of an act of worship than singing a hymn or taking an offering or preaching a sermon or even taking communion. And when we have that kind of view of sex, it's clear why Paul would say, shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. So Paul sums up verses 12 through 17 before moving, on with this, before moving on to the next slogan. He sums it up with a command. He says, flee immorality. The idea is simple. He said, And I've said this before. Uh, so some of you may remember me talking about a conference that I went to with a speaker. He gave some good practical advice. Right? He gave some good practical advice. He said, when you're in a situation where you're tempted to act immorally, His advice was to do as Joseph did in in Genesis 39. When Potiphar's wife was trying to seduce him, he said, Run! Right? He said, Run! It's hard to have sex while you're running. That's what he said. That's what we need to do. Paul says, Run! Flee! See, the present tense here indicates a habitual fleeing. In other words, it's keep on running. Don't stop running. Run, because it's hard to have sex while you're running. Flee immorality. So, having seen the first point in our sermon outline, right? Number one, that what Christ provides is freedom from sin, not freedom to sin, freedom from sin. So therefore, flee immorality. Having seen that, next we see that number two, Christ makes us slaves to righteousness. Slaves to righteousness. In verse 18, Paul recounts the third and final slogan or saying being used by the Corinthians to justify their immorality. The New American Standard adds the word other. That's why it's in italics, right? Whenever you see a word in italics in the New American Standard or most other versions, it's because the authors have added it for clarity. Although sometimes it doesn't make it more clear, but less clear, right? So it should be instead read as it is in the original Greek. Instead of adding the word other, let's take that out. It says every sin, not every other sin, but every sin that a man commits is outside the body. That's what they were saying. So what this phrase represents is just a continuation, a reiteration, of, if you will, of what they claimed by their earlier statements. That their physical lives were separate from their spiritual lives. That sin was something that happened outside of the body, but that which happened inside the body or in the body didn't matter. That they were just acting out biological functions. Eating, having sex, those things were not sinful, but natural. It was just the way that we're made to be. Does that sound familiar? It's the way God made me, right? Well, they were using it as an excuse for sin. So Paul says, you may argue that there's this separation between the physical and the spiritual, but the immoral man sins against his own body. In other words, this animalistic bodily functions that you're talking about. You think we came from apes and therefore we should act like the neighborhood dog, right? He says, that's crazy. That's not what your bodies are for. The purpose of your body is to bring glory to God. So you're sinning against your own body. You're ignoring its intended purpose by using it for dishonorable activities. And what follows is two reasons why they, why they need to honor God with their bodies. Number one, two reasons why they need to honor God. Number one, for the fifth time, Paul says, do you not know? Do you not know? Have you not caught on to this, right? Your, bottle, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you. He says, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. See, and sexual sin def- defiles not just the temple but it also takes the Holy Spirit with us when we sin. See, Christ lives in us. That the Holy Spirit, He dwells inside of us. And you cannot remove the Holy Spirit that any act of sexual immorality involves the Holy Spirit. You're taking the Holy Spirit with you. Just as sex within marriage is a beautiful act of worship, the Holy Spirit is present and glorified because it's done in the presence of God, so also sexual immorality is an act of idolatry also done in the presence of God. Consider the words of 2 Corinthians six, sixteen through 17 Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate says the Lord. And do not touch what is unclean. You're a temple. The temple of God. The temple of the living God. The temple of the Holy Spirit. Do not touch what is unclean. Do not defile the temple. Do not bring God into that situation. And number two, we're to honor God with our bodies because you've been bought with a price. He says you have been bought with a price. You're no longer your own. You've been bought with the precious blood of Christ. You can no longer live for your glory, but you are called to live for His glory. Just as 1 Peter 1, 18-19 says, you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life, inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. You were bought... You were bought with the blood of Jesus. So you're not your own. Your body doesn't belong to you. It belongs to Him. He says your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, and you've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your bodies. Glorify God in your bodies. So, to review, what Christ provides, number one, is freedom from sin. Not freedom to sin. And number two, Christ makes us slaves to righteousness. Number two, we are slaves to righteousness. So we're freed from sin and we're slaves to righteousness. So how do we, as Harmony Bible Church, both individually and corporately, specifically apply all of this to our lives? May we not say, first of all, that we are free in Christ to sin. May we never say, we are free in Christ's sin. But may we instead say, we are free in Christ from sin. We have been freed from sin. Therefore, we can flee immorality. We must remember that Christ died to redeem our bodies. And that we are now members of His body. We are forever connected with Him. So number one, we must not say that we are free in Christ to sin, but free in Christ from sin. And number two, we must submit to His authority over our lives and live as slaves to righteousness. We must remember that our body is a temple of the Holy Spirit and we've been bought with a price. That God dwells inside of us. He lives in us. And we have been bought with a price that He owns us. We must be careful not to live lives of spiritual compartmentalism. This idea that we can somehow live in the physical world and live in the spiritual world, that we can come to church, we can we can pray, we can put a check or some cash in the offering plate, that we can take the offering, that we can serve some in some capacity as a deacon or a pastor or whatever, and that we can then go and go about our own business, do our own thing the rest of the week. That we can do our own thing in our own physical lives because they're just natural bodily functions, right? No, you cannot eat what you want to eat. You cannot. You cannot have sex with who you want to have sex with. That it's not it's not your choice, it's his choice. You were bought with a price, it's now his body. He calls the shots. But if you're a follower of Jesus, He calls the shots. He dwells inside of you. And He has become your master. He has bought you with a price. Therefore, we need to eat and drink or, and whatever we do, whatever. And I believe that whatever means whatever. That whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, we do all things for the glory of God. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that You'd be with us. Praise You for Your promise that You will redeem these bodies. God, I pray with Paul that we would beat them into submission, become slaves to righteousness, that we would honor You with our bodies, that we would recognize that Our bodies are called to serve a purpose and it is not to bring pleasure to ourselves or glory to ourselves, but instead to bring you honor, to bring you glory. God, I pray that we would honor you with our bodies. I pray that as we think about the food we eat, the activities we participate in, God, that we would be eager to see that you are not only with us, but in us. And God, that we have been called to serve you. God, I pray and ask that you would just give us grace, grace upon grace to live for you. God, we know that this is nothing that we will do in our own strength. God, we know that this is not a message of needing to clean up our act, but instead a message of what you have already done for us and living in light of that truth. God, I pray that You'd be with us now, that You'd help us to hold each other accountable, to not create an environment where we've created this false dichotomy of that which is physical and that which is spiritual, but instead that in everything we serve You. In everything we bring You glory. In everything we praise You. We further Your kingdom. God, help us to see and ask not, can I do that? But instead... Is it profitable? Is it going to have mastery over me? In what way does this draw me to a closer relationship with my Lord? In what way is this going to pull me away from my Lord and instead make decisions based on that grid instead of the desire to do what we want to do? We pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Jason Pauley, pastor of Harmony Bible Church in South Thomaston, Maine. Feel free to share this message with others, and we invite you to connect with us on Facebook at facebook.com backslash Harmony Bible Church. God bless you, and to God be the glory.